if I could have everyone kind of start to move to your seats, we want to we want to be sure and, and allow Dr. Burke uh, sufficient time to cover everything that he wants to to bring to us this this morning. So, uh, I think we've got everybody. I don't think I need to introduce anything else. Uh, I did want to just say uh, we were talking about it. We are going to have a Q and A session this afternoon after lunch. If you would. Write down any questions that you might have. What we're going to do is give those questions to Dr. Burke and let him answer them. That way we can capture the questions as well on the audio for, for future reference. And so be thinking about what you might like to like to ask and, and write those down and we'll, we'll gather those up. So, Dr. Burke. I'm out of water. Somebody get me some water. Yeah, can I get two? I just looked under here and found that it was empty. Well, thanks. Oh, look at that. Three. Okay, I appreciate it. Something happened right before I left Kentucky. I started having a sore throat, so I don't know what, what the deal is. I'm hoping it will help me to be out here and dry panhandle. Okay. Um, let me pray. Father, help us again as we open up your word. And Lord, help us to think clearly, clearly and rightly about what you have revealed to us. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, over the last year, we have all watched this really sad spectacle that has unfolded, really since last October, when uh, these women came forward to expose one of the most powerful men in Hollywood as an abuser. And these revelations in 2000, in 2017 gave birth to the hashtag MeToo, which we've been seeing a lot of lately. And they all, it also gave birth to a flood of other women who came forward to tell their own stories of abuse and harassment at the hands of powerful men. I believe there's really been a long overdue reckoning in many quarters because of this. The Hollywood movie maker who was at the center of those initial allegations has now fallen from Hollywood mogul to disgraced sex offender. Long overdue justice is being served to him and to other predatory men. Sadly, as those revelations unfolded in the secular world, a church too hashtag also emerged. And over the last months, uh, we have been facing revelations of misbehavior even among well-known leaders associated with the evangelical movement. And as a result of this, uh, my own denomination, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, last summer overwhelmingly approved a resolution condemning abuse and another one on the holiness and integrity of ministry leaders. But I have noticed a common thread in much of the secular responses to the Me Too revelations over the last several months. These are the secular responses. Their solution has been not only to identify and punish abusers, and that's something that we would all agree with, 
and would want to happen. The secular response and solution has also been to call for more feminism. This becomes problematic for us but because feminism does not define justice the way that you and I would define justice. Various strains of feminism, at least since the 1960s, have been arguing that our problems are systemic. And these feminists have argued that patriarchy is all pervasive in our culture and that women have been owned and controlled through the tyranny of marriage, sex, and child rearing. Secular feminists tend to view Christianity as a patriarchal religion which has devalued women and they view the church as a powerful agent of that oppression. For some of the very reasons that I just discussed with you in the last talk. Now there are another group of people who are um, what we will call evangelical feminists. Um, sometimes we would also refer to them as egalitarians. And rather than outright rejecting the faith, they've been trying to redefine the faith and what the Bible says about men and women in the church and in the home. And some of them have latched on to the Me Too moment to press their case. And they are making the argument that what I would believe about manhood and womanhood is wrong and is a part of the reason why women are so mistreated in our culture. To put a finer point on it, <clears throat> they believe that an all-male eldership and husbands leading their families cause the kinds of abuses that we are witnessing in the Me Too moment. And they believe that me and anybody else here who happens to believe those things, that they believe we need to offload that patriarchal baggage from our faith. Now here's the issue that, that we're facing as we come to the scripture this morning. On the one side, we have both secular feminists and evangelical feminists telling you that male leadership in the church and in the home is a great evil that needs to be eradicated. On the other side, we have scripture telling us that male leadership in the church and the home is God's design and is given to us for our blessing. And so the question facing us is who are we going to believe? This is a tough question for us because our beliefs about these things apart from the Me Too moment, are already so unpopular. <clears throat> Add to it the Me Too suspicions, and you can see why our biblical beliefs are despised by so many in the culture today. And so there's a tremendous social pressure on us to abandon what Scripture teaches for a feminist alternative. And so the question really is, who are we going to believe? God and His Word or our cultured despisers? Now, I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in this second session this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> and if in the third session, I hope to make our way through the rest of the verses in this passage, through verse 16. But um, just today, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 3, here in the second session. Now, this passage is not only one of the most controversial passages in all the New Testament, it's also one of the most difficult to understand. And um, nevertheless, even though some of the details may be unclear, I think the main thrust of Paul's argument about men and women in public worship is clear. Some of the things that he says here have implications for the discussion that we just had in the last hour about transgenderism. 
This is not a message about transgenderism. It's a message about headship. But you're going to see that what he says here has implications for that other discussion. So even though some things may be unclear, I think the main thrust of Paul's argument is, is clear. Paul has just finished a section about idolatry, and now he's turning the page to a new set of topics. And he's addressing some of the shortcomings that the Corinthians were having when they gathered together for worship. The first issue has to do with headship. The next issue has to do with the Lord's Supper. And then he deals with uh, the gift of tongues and prophecy. Um, but the, the very first thing that he deals with has to do with headship in their public worship. And he's going to say three things about headship. Here it is. He's going to talk about Christ's headship over man, man's headship over woman, and then God's headship over Christ. Okay, We're going to look at all three of those. In verses 2 and 3. So, Christ's headship over man. Everybody look at verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now in verse 1, Paul has just told them, if you look at verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And now in verse 2, he praises them because for the most part, They've been following his example. They are being imitators of him. They have remembered him in everything. How does Paul know that they are remembering him in this way? Well, the answer to that is in the next clause, because they hold fast, firmly to the traditions, just as he delivered them to them. Now, it's difficult to see in English the wordplay that Paul is doing here. So I'm going to give you a really literal translation so you can catch it. He says, you hold fast to the things handed down to you, just as I handed them down to you. The things handed down to them were Paul's authoritative apostolic teaching. That's what he's saying. So their faithfulness is not just because they remember Paul generically and have nice thoughts about Paul. Their faithfulness is because they remember and hold fast to his teachings. And that holding fast, that faithfulness has two parts to it. Number one, that they're holding fast to the teaching that Paul delivered to them. You remember from Acts chapter 18 that Paul lived with them and taught them in Corinth for a year and a half. Go read it in Acts chapter 18. They had the apostolic word not in a book like we have it. They had the apostolic word in a person because Paul was there preaching to them. And so their faithfulness to Jesus consisted in their receiving that word, preserving that word, and holding fast to that word. So faithfulness was holding fast, but then secondly... It's not merely that they were holding fast to the teaching. They were holding fast as he handed it down to them. Did you catch that? That means that they have not corrupted the teaching in any way. They received the teaching, but then they didn't corrupt it after they received it. No, they held fast to what Paul taught them in the very same sense that he taught it to them. And so he praises them because they neither changed Paul's words nor did they change the meaning of Paul's words. And so they had, the, they had the apostolic truth in a person, in Paul's presence. We have the apostolic truth in a book. So as we think about applying this, that means that if we want to hold fast to the truth, as God has delivered it to us, we must neither change the words of this book nor must we ever change the meaning of the words of this book. Which means we need to understand what, 
hold this book firmly, but then also understand what Paul meant when he wrote it and what the other authors meant when they wrote. This is important for us because some people are going to try to undermine your faithfulness to Christ by either changing the words or by changing the meaning of the words. And they'll try to, they'll try to, so let me explain what I mean by that. They'll try to change the words in this sense. They will argue that some of what the Apostle Paul has told us is just wrong. Um, They will say that because he was wrong on some things, there are some words in your Bible that you need not pay attention to. Um, One of the main commentaries that I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians at my church in Louisville, Kentucky. And one of the main commentaries that I have used in studying 1 Corinthians, Corinthians is written by a man named Richard Hayes. I think Richard Hayes is a brilliant New Testament scholar. I think a lot of what he says about 1 Corinthians is right. And it's actually been really helpful to me. But guess what Richard Hayes does when he comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? He understands Paul to be teaching headship based on Paul's own interpretation of Genesis 2. But guess what Hayes says about Paul's interpretation of Genesis 2? He says Paul's interpretation of Genesis 2 is wrong. And we know better how to interpret Genesis 2 than Paul did. And so that enables Hayes just to set aside the apostles' teaching about male headship. Unless you think this is all academic, let me tell you that it's not. At my own church, Kenwood Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, I serve as associate pastor there. We had a member who was no longer coming to our church anymore. And when the senior pastor reached out to this member to encourage the member to come back, the member expressed disagreement with Paul's teaching on gender. And the pastor pointed out, but this is in the Bible. And the member dug in and said, I don't care. I don't agree. We ended up having to remove this person from membership for, because they rejected the Bible's teaching and for, and for non-attendance. So, so there are people out there, uh, you know, I'm not just making this up, okay. There are people out there, and some people believing it, um, that they will try to convince you that Paul is wrong in his teaching about gender. You just need to know that is the opposite of faithfulness, Okay. Um, It's error and false teaching and will undermine your faithfulness because it's trying to undermine the authority of Scripture in your life. So some people are going to say, you don't have to hold fast to all of the words. Okay, some of them are just wrong. So we we want to avoid that. But some people are going to try to undermine your faithfulness by changing the words of, even though some people will try to change the words of Scripture, some people are going to just... They're going to try to undermine your faithfulness in a different way. They're not going to say that those words are wrong. They're going to try to undermine you by changing the meaning of Paul's words. And and by that I mean change what Paul intended to communicate by the words that he used. So they won't just come out and say, he's wrong. They'll say, "Uh, what you think about what he said is wrong. And this is the one that's actually a little more subtle. And I think it's the one that you're most likely to run into in evangelical circles. Um, I believe that evangelical feminists, egalitarians, their interpretations of Scripture fall into that category. Um, uh, Evangelical feminists aren't willing to come right out and say that Paul was wrong. They, They actually don't believe that. They want you to think that what the church has always understood Paul to mean is is wrong. 
And so they will say, yes, Paul says that the husband's the head of the wife, but head doesn't mean authority. Or they'll say, sure, Paul says that a woman ought not to teach or to exercise authority over a man. But what he really means is that a woman should teach and exercise authority over a man. I kid you not, this is the arguments that they make. And so, so they adopt these incredible hermeneutical strategies to affirm what the Bible denies and to deny what the Bible affirms. They argue that the church has just gotten all this wrong through the centuries until us enlightened Westerners finally figured it out in the 1970s and 80s. And so I think they're undermining the functional authority of Scripture in this area of the church's life. I'm not saying that these, these folks are insincere. I am saying that I think that they are sincerely wrong. And you would be wrong and in error if you followed that teaching because you'll not be holding fast to the teaching as Paul originally taught it. And we want to hold fast to the teaching as, as he taught it. So, so Paul, in verse 2, praises the Corinthians for holding fast to the teaching that he delivered to them. But then the praise stops there. Because the next verse implies that they are not totally on the same page with Paul in every single respect. They need to understand that they are falling short when it comes to, to his teaching on headship. So everybody look at verse 3. And this is the heart of it. Verse 3 says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. Now, this verse is the main thing that we have to get right about this passage. If we miss what this verse is teaching, we miss the point of the passage. Because this verse sets forth the theological principle that's the foundation for everything else that follows. Everything else that follows about head coverings, hair length, are applications of this fundamental principle of headship expressed in verse 3. So we'll get to some of those applications in the next hour. Right now, we're looking at this issue of headship. Now, obviously, Paul unfolds a series of relationships, all of which are defined by headship. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ. But what Paul means by head is precisely what is in dispute among many readers of Scripture. Evangelical feminists, they argue that head, that word, head does not mean authority. Um, this, they're kind of going against what the majority of interpreters over the 2,000-year history of the church have believed. But they're arguing that people have gotten it wrong. And so they argue that, that head means source. <coughs> On this view, Paul simply means to say that Christ is the source of man in that he created man. Man is the source of woman in that Eve was taken from Adam's side. And that God is the source of Christ in that God sent Christ or perhaps eternal generation. In any case, headship signifies the source of something and there's no hierarchy or authority involved in a headship relationship. That's how the egalitarians argue it. Now I think that interpretation is mistaken for a number of reasons. First of all, it's not clear that the word head ever means source anywhere in Greek literature. It's possible, perhaps in a handful of of texts, but it's never clear. Second, it's very clear that the word head means authority in a number of places in Greek literature and especially in biblical texts and especially in Paul's writings. Just to give you a couple of examples, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. 
And he, God, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet. And gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. What does head mean? He's the authority over the church. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he is the head over all rule and authority. What does head mean? It's the same word as 1 Corinthians 11. It means authority. Uh, Ephesians 5, 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. That's just three examples, but it's very clear when Paul uses this term. He means, he often means authority. That's what head means. So it really takes some special pleading to get those uses of head to mean anything except authority. And Paul certainly means authority when he uses the term in 1 Corinthians 11.3. So, if that's what headship is referring to, how does headship as authority cash out in the three relationships in verse 3? Well, the first relationship is Christ's headship over man. <clears throat> and that's the, by the way, point one is longer than the second two points, so don't get scared. Um, we're still under Christ's headship over man. The second two points will be shorter. Um, Christ is the head of every man. That's what the text says. But Paul doesn't use the generic word for mankind when he says Christ is the head of every man. He uses the specific word for a male human being. Certainly Christ has authority over every man ever created, but I think Paul means to stress here Christ's authority over the men in the congregation. Every one of them have a covenant obligation to submit to the authority of Christ. That's what he's saying when he says that Christ is head over every male. Now, there isn't much debate over this particular line as there is over the next two, so I'm not going to linger here too long because at least in principle, all sides agree that Christ is authority over every man. Our problem is not in understanding the principle of Christ's authority over us. It's in realizing the practice of Christ's authority over us. Christ is the authority over every aspect of our lives. His word is literally our command. To the degree that it isn't, we aren't being faithful to his authority. And so Paul says, Christ's headship over every man at that first part of verse 3. But the second thing, this is the second big point, he's going to talk about man's headship over woman. So look at verse 3 again. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and the man is the head of a woman. Now there's a question here about who this man and this woman are. Now I just, I've been reading to you from the New American Standard Bible. I notice, I know that most of you here are probably reading from the ESV. <clears throat> and that in the ESV, it says that the husband is the head of the wife. Did you notice that? Mine says man is the head of woman. Uh, ESV says the husband is the head of a wife. Why are the translations so different here? Well, the word for man in Greek is the same as the word for husband. And the word for woman in Greek is the same as the word for, for wife. And so context determines whether or not you're dealing with a man or a woman in general or with a husband and a wife in particular. In this case, I think the ESV has it right. Paul has in mind a husband and a wife in particular. Why? Well, for one thing, when Paul discusses man and woman like this together elsewhere, he's typically dealing with husbands and wives. A good example is Ephesians 5. But also notice that it says Christ 
is the head of every man. Right? Christ is the head of every man, but it doesn't say that man is the head of every woman. Did you catch that? And I think the reason for that is that he has in mind the particular obligation that a marriage covenant puts on a husband and a wife. A man is the head of his wife, not of every woman. The Bible does not teach anywhere that, the man, that a man is the head of somebody else's wife. Okay? It doesn't teach that. He's only the head of his own wife because of the covenant relationship they're in in their marriage. And so that's what I think is in view here. And that's why I think the ESV's rendering is correct. He's dealing with husbands and wives. And this is the part that's really toxic to feminists. This verse really does seem to be saying that God has designed the marriage relationship as a headship relationship. The husband is supposed to lead and the wife is supposed to affirm and support that leadership. To miss that is to miss what God has designed marriage to be. Men, that means that God has called you to bless your wife and family by leading them. Your headship does not exist so that you can serve yourself, but so that you can serve them. The pattern for your headship is Christ's headship, which means that it's a leadership modeled on love and self-sacrifice. Again, Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be that are husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, your headship in your home does not exist so that you can put your desires and needs before everybody else's in the home. Not if you want to have a headship like Jesus's. Your headship exists so that you can give yourself up for your wife like Christ gave himself up for you. That's how your leadership goes. That means that being the leader and the provider and the protector is sometimes going to be hard for you. There are going to be times when you have a conflict with your wife, for example. And there will be times when the conflict is her fault. And you are going to feel like disengaging emotionally from your wife. But you don't get to do that as the head of your home. You don't wait passive aggressively until your wife swallows her pride and makes the first move to reconcile. You are the leader. That means that you are leading the charge for reconciliation when there is a conflict in your home. You get to treat your wife like Jesus treats you as a sinner. You lead and model. Did Jesus wait for you to become repentant and deserving before he drew you to himself? He did not. Did Jesus lead out in your reconciliation to him? Or did you lead out in your reconciliation with Jesus? You know the answer to that. Jesus did everything to win you and you must do the same for your wife. You say, but I'm really mad at her. Well, you get unmad. You say, but I'm not a good communicator. Well, then you get to be a better communicator. You be the head of your home. You take the initiative and you model tenderness and mercy and love and forgiveness and everything else that she needs to make submitting to you a joy for her. 
You say, but that's hard. Well, yeah, it's hard. But guess what? You're not going to have to do anything harder than what Jesus did to love you. And he's your model. So you follow Jesus and you love your wife self-sacrificially. Husbands, that's what it means to be head of your wives. You are, there's actual leadership there. Okay? But you're leading out in all the things that are a blessing to your home. <clears throat> wives, that means that the onus is on you to affirm that leadership. To support it. To encourage it. You're not to submit to every man in the world. You're just not. You're not married to, you're married to this guy. So you are to affirm one man's headship, your husband's. You should view affirming your husband's leadership as a part of your commitment to the Lord. So the narrow way that leads to life for you includes affirming that headship in the home. Now, listen, marriage is more than headship, okay? It is. There's more to marriage than headship. But marriage is not less than headship. That's the point I'm trying to make. And that's the point that's so contested today. Biblical headship blesses, honors, and protects wives and children and does not require them to submit to sin or to abuse. If there is a man claiming on the basis of headship a right to sin or to abuse, you don't submit to that. We don't bless that. He doesn't have the authority to do either of those things. Or to call you to submit to either of those things. He has the authority to be obedient to Jesus and to lead his family to be obedient to Jesus. If he's calling you to sin, then you do like the apostles did when they said it is better to obey God rather than men. If a man in the name of headship tries to abuse, you don't submit to the abuse. He has, does not have the authority to do that. I have more to say about that, but I'll, I'll pause right there. In fact, you should report that to the authorities. That's what you should do with that. If you're a pastor, you should report abuse to the authorities. And then you should bring the church's discipline to bear to that. So that kind of abuse has nothing to do with biblical headship. Biblical headship blesses, honors, and blesses and protects wives and children. It doesn't require them to submit to sin or to abuse. Failure to realize biblical headship is one of the reasons why there is so much dysfunction in marriages today. Our culture is trying to run marriage in a way that's contrary to God's design. And it's like trying to run your car on half and half mixture of gasoline and moonshine. It might run for a little while, but it's not going to run well. and It's probably going to ruin the engine. So Paul talks about first Christ's headship over man. Then he talks about man's headship over woman, by which he means, I think, husband's headship with wives in marriage. But then finally, look at verse 3. Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. When Paul wants to refer to God the Father, um, he often just uses the word, the Greek word for God, theos. And, and that's what he does here. And so Paul is, since Paul is referring to God the Father here, I think he's making a Trinitarian statement. Paul says that God the Father, God is the head of Christ. That means he's the authority over Christ, God's son. Does that mean that Christ is somehow less than God? Because the Father is in authority over him. No, it does not mean that. Here's why. 
within the inner triune life of God, there's an absolute equality of deity between Father and Son. There's an eternal relation of origin that establishes both difference between Father and Son and that guarantees they both, as God, equally share all the attributes of deity, including equal power and authority. But I don't think that Paul's words here are drawing attention to that feature of what we call the imminent trinity. Um, Paul's referring here, I think, to what theologians call the economic trinity. How do we know that? Paul's use of the word Christ focuses us on the Son of God's unique role as the mediator of the new covenant. And as the mediator, Christ submits to the Father's authority. You see that most clearly in Jesus' incarnation, don't you? Jesus says in John 5, I can only do what I see my Father doing. I've come to do the will of my Father. Christ is submitting to his Father's authority as he's functioning as mediator in his role as as mediator. Uh, One theologian, Scott Swain, he put it this way. Scott Swain and Michael Allen. The obedience of the eternal Son and the economy of salvation is the proper mode whereby he enacts the undivided work of the Trinity. It is the economic extension of his eternal generation to a spirit-enabled creaturely life of obedience unto death. Or if we wanted to put it in biblical terms that we can all comprehend, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped for, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in this sense, Christ submits to his Father, who is his head and authority. But this last phrase of verse 3 raises a question for us. Why does Paul put the God-Christ relationship last in this series? If Paul were really trying to indicate some kind of a hierarchy, it seems like he would have started with God and Christ right at the very top. It seems like he would have said God's the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. That's not what he does though, is it? It's Christ, man, woman, and then God is the head of Christ at at last. Why Why does he do it that way? I think he put it God's headship over Christ right after the man-wife relationship to press the headship analogy. He wanted to show that the the husband and wife relationship is like the God-Christ relationship in some sense. Not in every sense, okay, but in a limited sense. And the sense is this headship analogy. He's saying that a man's headship over his wife is like God's headship over Christ. Even though Christ submits to God the Father, that submission does not make him inferior to his Father in terms of his deity, does it? He's still equal. Even though God is the head over Christ, he is not essentially greater than Christ. So too, even though women are under men's authority in marriage, they are not essentially inferior as persons, are they? Men and women, we saw in Genesis chapter 1, are created equally in God's image. They have equal value and dignity before God as persons. That equality is not diminished at all by the fact that the man is assigned to this role of leadership 
in marriage. That's, I think that's what he's perhaps trying to press here. Christ is not a less than deity because he submits to his father in his role as mediator. A woman is not less than human because she affirms her husband's headship in, in marriage. I think that's what he's trying to say. Equal value and worth before God. Difference in role does not mean inequality. Different roles for men and women within the covenant of marriage do not imply inequality between men and women as persons. Christ's deity is not diminished by his submission to his father. Likewise, a wife's value and worth are not diminished by her submission to her husband. You know, from time to time I hear people say that our views on gender should not be based at all on our view of the Trinity. And actually, I hear this from from folks on both sides of the gender debate, from complementarians and from egalitarians. And I think I understand the reasons for why people are wary of theologizing about gender through comparisons to the Trinity. First of all, the comparisons can get really speculative and disconnected from Scripture. Secondly, there's a danger of forcing the Trinity onto a Procustian bed of one's views about male and female relationships. I think in both cases... That central doctrine of the faith, the Trinity, can become the handmaiden to a second-tier theological debate. I'm completely sympathetic to that. I I, I have a concern about that. I think the gender debate can get so controverted that the tail can wag the dog theologically, and we don't want to do that, okay? So having said that, I want to be careful not to overcorrect. I saw one well-known theologian do this one time when he wrote this, he said, Scripture itself does not explicitly link gender to Trinity or the masculine-feminine dynamic to the father-son dynamic. And when I read that, I thought, huh, what about 1 Corinthians 11.3? I understand that there can be speculative abuses, but that shouldn't diminish the fact that the analogy between male headship in marriage and God's headship over Christ is not coming from speculation, but from these words from the Bible. I didn't make this up. It comes from the very verse that we're reading here. So, our task then is to go neither beyond Scripture nor fall short of what Scripture says. And so Paul says that I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So that means that we need to understand that these headship relationships are like one another in at least one key respect. They designate relationships of authority and submission. God sent his son as the mediator who obeys to the point of death and thereby becomes highly exalted. If that is true, it is no dishonor or slight for a wife to affirm the headship of her husband. And it is certainly no dishonor for a man to submit utterly to his head, Jesus Christ. Now, there's more that I could say about this, but I want to just finish here quickly um, with giving you three questions for you to think about how to to apply this text as you think about your own life, you think about your own marriages. So here's the first thing. Are you holding fast to all of what Scripture teaches? It's to everybody in the room. Are you holding fast to all of what Scripture teaches? Or do you pick and choose and modify the parts that don't fit your conception of how God ought to run the world? You need to understand, if you're, 
picking and choosing and modifying, you're not submitting to the authority of Scripture. Your task is to understand what it says and then to submit to what it says if you want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. Faithfulness is measured by what God has revealed, not by what seems good to you or to anybody else at any given time. Second question. Husbands, are you okay with the fact that Christ is the absolute authority over every man? Over you. Christ is your head, and you are the head of your family. Think about that. Christ is your head, you're the head of your family. Your headship is supposed to look like his headship over you. Have you reckoned with that? If I were to ask your wife and your kids about your headship, would they see a correspondence between the way you lead them and the way that Jesus leads you? Maybe you ought to take some time and go ask your wife if she perceives a correspondence between the way you lead her and the way that Jesus has led you. Three, wives, are you okay with the role that God has called you to in marriage? To enter into the covenant of marriage is to enter into God's design for marriage and his design for that covenant. And he has designed for women to be helpers in that relationship. Do you see God's design for marriage as good for you? Last thing, this is for all of us. Are we willing to accept the implications that this teaching about headship, are we willing to accept the implications that that teaching has for all of us as we gather together in our individual churches for worship, Sunday after Sunday? Now, in the next uh, final session, before the Q&A, we're going to talk more about this, about how this fleshes out by looking at the rest of the passage. Because the rest of the passage is about how the headship principle fleshes out in the way that they're doing church together. Paul says that it has to have a specific application and should be reflected in their forms of worship. So the question for us is, do we recognize the fact that God has called us to recognize a principle of headship at work in both the home and in the church? To miss that is to upend God's design for the family and for the covenant family of the church. So we'll talk about more on that in the next hour. Father, I pray you'd use this word again to transform us into the image of Jesus. Bless us as your people with faithfulness and resolve for the good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we will take a break. We'll be back here in about 10.